0: So I guess I want to begin by by saying in all sincerity and honesty that to be a rabbi is truly a privilege, and to be your rabbi, the rabbi of this congregation, is a distinct privilege. I'm reminded of just how much every single day. To be invited into people's lives and into their homes at the most profound and meaningful moments is humbling. It's incredibly humbling. The most humbling of those moments, I must tell you, is when I am asked to come to sit at the bedside or in the living room of one of your loved ones who is facing a terminal illness. There is nothing that a rabbi does that is more sacred or more holy than those moments. When I was in LA, I mentored a number of rabbinical students because the seminary was there. And I would teach my rabbinical students. And I always endeavored to remind myself That it's not Dan Moskowitz that's being invited into the room in that moment. It's not even Rabbi Dan Moskowitz that's being invited into that room. In that moment, the rabbi is a symbolic exemplar of the divine. If the family could invite God into that room at that moment to guide them and hold their hand along the path of decisions that they have to make as life, the end of life approaches, they would invite God into that room. But they can't. And so they're stuck with me. And so when they ask me, or a rabbi, rabbi, he didn't want to live like this, with tubes and machines keeping him alive, what should we do? Or when they tell me and confess to me, rabbi, I just can't do another round of chemo. I just can't go on like this. I can't put my family through. They're not asking me. They're asking God. And so if you'll excuse the blunt language for a moment, who am I, insert adjective there, who am I to speak for God? At best, at best I can relate how other rabbis in Jewish tradition have answered those questions over, the, over time. And they too were never speaking for God only interpreting our tradition as they best understood it. What God would say to your loved one in that moment as they lay there, wracked with worry and with pain and with anguish and anxiety, I honestly don't know. But I think it would begin with God shedding tears. Tears for the pain, the suffering, the uncertainty, the burden, tears for the complexity of human human beings being confronted with the most impossible and imposing of decisions. Matters of life and death. This morning, the Supreme Court of Canada issued a ruling that opens up the door to the legalization a year or so from now of doctor-assisted suicide for people suffering from a grievous and irremediable though not necessarily terminal condition. Through some legal apparatus that's not yet to be defined, the court has decided to put the answer to these questions of life and death in the hands of individuals, or perhaps their family members who have been enacted and trusted to act on their behalf or their instructions. Commentators and legal scholars are calling this a landmark ruling and one of the most important rulings on a sensitive social issue in the history of Canada, in the history of our country. The Vancouver Sun reported that Canada's highest court ruled unanimously and emphatically that the criminal code ban on assisted suicide, which provided up until this moment a sentence of up to 14 years in jail, violates the charter of rights and freedom. 14 years in jail if you assisted somebody in ending their own life. Specifically, the ruling noted that Canada's laws against assisted suicide unjustifiably infringe Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees everyone's life, liberty, and security, and are of no force or effect to the extent that they prohibit physician-assisted death for a competent adult person. In rendering this decision, the Supreme Court of Canada continued an evolving practice within civil law of extending to citizens more and more personal rights, liberties, and autonomy. I'm a scholar of Jewish law, not of civil law, but I know enough about the latter to observe that this is the way of democracy, that the laws that we have, they must reflect the will of the people for whom they are adjudicated, if they are to have any weight or meaning. Changing them through the ballot box, legislation, or legal redress is the cornerstone of a democracy. It is, however, not the cornerstone of traditional Jewish law. Judaism teaches that life is bestowed by God, and thus only God can decide when it ends. My teacher and Jewish ethicist, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, explaining this traditional halachic legal perspective, uses the idea of a steward or stewardship. That with full responsibility for guarding what has been entrusted to us, we are stewards of our life. God entrusted us with the use of our bodies during our lifetimes and we are obligated to safeguard them while they are on loan to us, this loan of life. An observation as an aside that reminds me of the 99-year-old... great ragtime composer and pianist uh, Yubi Blake, who said, if I'd only known that I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. (laughs) In Judaism, individuals have significant personal autonomy regarding their bodies, but we do not have unlimited autonomy. We do not have unlimited or boundless authority over our own bodies. That's where we get the things about not being able to have tattoos or certain ear piercings or those kinds of things. And of course, in the most extreme case, we don't have the autonomy, the authority to take our own lives. We can make decisions to preserve life, but we do not have the authority to decide when it ends, when to end it. Unequivocally, traditional Judaism says that it is not our decision, it is God's. So let me teach you a Hebrew word. A word that I pray and I wish you will never have to use. It will never apply to anyone that you know. The word is gosace. Gosace. And in Jewish law, it refers to someone who is on the threshold of dying. For whom death is imminent. <coughs> Do you need a glass of water we have here? Do you need it? I just put some gum, yeah. Okay. No, it's okay. Caring for a goseis is a matter of serious concern in Jewish tradition. What you do with somebody, how you treat them when death is imminent, when you know that the end is near. In the great code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, we are taught that a goseis is considered a human being in every single respect, and we are forbidden to hasten that person's death. Rabbi Moshe Isserlis explains, he's the, the, the redactor of the Shulchan Aruch, if you would. It is forbidden to hasten death. However, if there is an impediment preventing the soul's departure, it is permissible to remove it. Notice this careful distinction between introducing an agent to hasten death, which is expressively forbidden, and removing something which prevents death from occurring, which is permitted. There is a limit to our autonomy, a boundary between the creator of life and human beings. We may not unnecessarily kill a person endowed with life, nor destroy others. Now the issue becomes increasingly complex, and my point tonight is not to teach a course on Jewish law or Jewish ethics. But to be clear, Jewish tradition generally permits passive euthanasia to let, for lack of a more direct phrase, nature take its course. You can remove impediments to the soul's departure, such as respirators or medications or therapies, if the person and or their family acting on their expressed wishes desires it. No heroic measures is the term that we often use for this today. But to the question of active euthanasia, which the Supreme Court's ruling is primarily addressing, traditional Jewish law clearly says, no, you can't. We do not have the autonomy to hasten death. Wherever you stand on this question, I think there is great wisdom in the Jewish perspective. Because I worry about allowing a right to die because I fear it's slowly shifting into a duty to die. My teacher, Jack Reimer has observed that we run the risk in this arena of creating a culture that makes people who are old or sick feel guilty about living. And that would be a horrible, horrible thing. Rabbi Baruch Friedman uh, Cole, the conservative rabbi at Congregation Sedek in Toronto, added to this worry in his High Holiday sermon from this past year. This worry that with another that assisted suicide, whether by family or physician, threatens the absolute sanctity and respect for the individual that is the foundation of Jewish tradition. He wrote, Perhaps wanting what's best for their surviving dear ones, terminally ill patients may simply choose death by pills or injection as a means of saving their family the financial and emotional burden of long-term care. Societal pressures to preserve precious communal resources might lead to a disregard for those ones who would be the least likely to counter such pressures. Those who are most vulnerable, namely the elderly, the mentally ill, minorities, and the poor. It's a concern that reads like a dystopian novel by Margaret Atwood. But one worries we could slide down a slippery slope. And so Judaism says, yesh Vu, there's a boundary. There is a limit. You cannot hasten death. But the issue is complex. Maybe more so for us as reformed Jews, where for us tradition, Jewish law, halakha, has a vote, but not a veto in our lives. The laws of Judaism with regard to the gosseis, they were written 1,500 years ago, when the power and possibility of modern medicine was not even yet imagined. No one lived for a long time with terminal illnesses. There was no mean to sustain life beyond the most rudimentary, let alone diagnose a terminal illness well in advance of its critical phase. In the end, my Judaism, Reformed Judaism, while informed by tradition, is not governed by it involuntarily. I can choose to allow myself to be governed by Halakha, and I can choose not to in specific and particular instances of my choosing. I assert my autonomy as a Jew to build a moral bridge, a gesher, between my modern ethical values and those inherent in our storied tradition. And I encourage you, through study, through prayer and reflection, to do the same. We, as Jews, we celebrate our struggle with God. It is not a sign of a lack of faith. It is a sign of faith. A struggle that was first waged by Abraham, continued by Jacob and Moses when they took God to task, and then embraced by the rabbis of the Talmud, whose pages are filled with arguments and discussions and dialogues, l'shem shemayim, for the sake of heaven, but they're not just arguing with each other, they are arguing with God and their ruling on a gossace was reflective of their time and what they thought God wanted of them then. Your belief and your practice, I believe, should similarly be expressed in the present tense. What you think God wants of you and those in your care today, with all that we have learned about science and medicine and pain and disease in modern time, factored in. I can't tell you what God would say in that moment, and in my view, neither can Jewish tradition with 100% certainty. What I can advise you now, before that moment comes, and it will come, death is as inevitable as anything else. Death is part of life. What I can advise you, and I say this, as a rabbi who has sat in that room hundreds and hundreds of times, is have the conversation with your family. Have the conversation with God. Have the conversation with yourself now. And make your desires and your decisions and your values known. The new law, if all proceeds as envisioned by the court, will place that ultimate decision in your hands or those who you entrust it to if you want it. And if you do, then make a decision about your own dying that you can live with. And if you can't, after thorough study and prayer and conversation, if you can't decide how you want to die, then focus all of your attention on how you want to live and give the rest over to God. In our door, there is a teaching by Rabbi Jacob Rudin, a blessed memory. He was a Reform rabbi in the 1920s and 30s in um, in New York City. And in it, he reminds us the following, teaches us the following: Death will come; its hand will not be stayed even an instant, nor can we enter into judgment with it. But this does not mean that we are helpless we can live life as long as it is ours to live to ask of death that it never come is futile but it is not futility to pray that when death does come for us it may take us from a world one corner of which is a little better because we were there when we die and people weep for us and grieve for us Let it be because we touched their lives with beauty and simplicity. Let it not be said that life was good to us, but rather that we were good to life. Can you hear May it be God's will. Amen. Our service continues with Elenu, page 586. Please rise. Thank you.